1: Hello and welcome to the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Today is Thursday, August 3rd, 2023. Jeff O'Neill with Rebecca Shinsky. Kind of a light news week uh, this week, which is kind of, we were just talking about it before the show, it's funny. Rebecca and I have taken on duties of alternating weeks of writing um, Book Riot's daily news Letter news newsletter that's weird uh, <laughs> called today in, yeah. today in books in which we highlight um, the most interesting bookish list list pieces going around that way it can be a list can be an article an opinion piece news you know profile whatever it might be and even though we've been doing that and we've been prospecting links for a million years so that's one reason we took it over It's like we're kind of doing this already anyway um, and we link to a lot of stuff but. That's different than that's makes for a good podcast segment. So, A, go check out Today in Books mm-hmm. if you want to see us round stuff up. Some of that stuff we'll make into the agenda. I'll put a link in the show notes, or you can go to com slash newsletters and find it there. Or todayinbooks.substack.com uh, is the URL. Those those are all harder things than looking at the show notes and clicking on the link. <laughs> so maybe maybe we did this last time because we we ran out of time to have substantive discussions of some of the links there. Maybe one thing we can do is add a segment to the show where we just say here here are the links that you know we're popping off in today in books. They they may not merit a discussion um, because I linked on Tuesday to a list of seventy five books for Gen Xers, and mm-hmm. it was kind of fun but also wrong and right and it's worth looking at but we're not going to talk about that did we used to do stuff we talk about a list that's not a nominations list or an award winning list no. i feel like we used to do stuff like that but i, I can't really recall now every
2: now and then maybe mm-hmm. um maybe before the internet was built primarily of lists Yeah, that's
1: fair. there's so many
2: <laughs> um, we might have done that. You know, one of the things I'm I'm on duty for most of this week, I was on PTO on Tuesday when you mm. covered. So, one of the things that um, I'm featuring in today in Books Today is that the Broadway musical of The Notebook by Nicholas Sparks is set to open in March. So, if that's a thing that you're into, are you going back you to back opening?
1: You're going to go opening night and the next night, or are you going to give them a couple of weeks to, to <laughs> iron out the kinks so and then go for a long weekend and, and, and do like a triple play? <laughs>
2: Are they going to pay me to go? Is this my moment to be an influencer?
1: (laughs) Um, Rebecca, I've got bad news for you. If you end up in a place where you're paying your bills by doing influencers for (laughs) Nicholas Sparks musicals, a lot of things in your life will have changed.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be a dark moment. I do like Ingrid Michaelson, who is a singer-songwriter who wrote the music for the show, so that was an interesting thing to see. Um, The endurance of the story in the notebook and that people like now we're into the second maybe Mm. third generation of readers who are paying attention to that um or or i kind of wonder i think it's movie fans honestly um more than book fans that are there but that was interesting to see um we are going to talk today about one of the things i linked to Mm. in yesterday's today in books um about gamification and how gamification is changing Um, the way that we read, but I've also just been noticing a bunch of really interesting uh, conversations and interviews around bookish stuff that happens on Substack, and as we've talked about, like, The author interview that's not about what's your writing routine and where do you get your ideas uh, is kind of a rare and glorious thing to find. And I've been subscribing to a Substack for a while called The Shift with Sam Baker, which is um, the companion to her podcast of the same title. It's about women over 40 and like what it's like to be a woman aging. Um, But she did this great long podcast interview with Barbara Kingsolver. And they talked about aging and being from Appalachia and also all sorts of stuff from Kingsolver's childhood, um, how she was a musical prodigy of sorts. Really? Uh, and just, yeah, and like pretty good at math. The headline that I wrote in was Barbara Kingsolver on aging, Appalachia, and algebra because we love alliteration. Mm. Um, but that was one of the things I featured. And so you can, like you know, check that out and also find a new Substack to subscribe to perhaps i'm feeling very validated that my like multi-years-long Substack addiction is
1: now spark musicals and Substacks <laughs> coming to the center uh, of the culture
2: yes yes
1: we joke a lot joke i'm not even sure it's joking um I'm not even sure what it is. What what is life? What is discourse? Language is slippery. Signs and significations. Wow, I really went there. You're like you're
2: really in August here, my friend.
1: Well, you know, when we say (laughs) we say from time to time, are we sure this person isn't the most interesting person in the world? We're both Mm. being ironical and not at the same time. Like it's it's hyperbole, but we're also commenting that person is interesting. I I think we should keep a running list of people we even say that ironical thing about because Barbara Kingsolver (laughs) is what I'm hearing maybe should oh, go on yes. the list of contenders for most interesting person in the world mm-hmm. slash the bookish world.
2: I agree. Yeah. I like this list.
1: I don't know. Nicholas Sparks is going to make it. He's he sold enough. Um, speaking of musicians, interesting people, this is a pre-shout pre, um, to the next, the next episode of First Edition, which is coming out next week. So I guess by the time you're listening to this, if you're not a patron and getting it early, hmm. will be Wednesday um, the 9th. A full episode with James McBride, a Reading Lives episode where I talk about his reading life. Also a musician, also a super interesting um, person. Talk about his childhood growing up in Brooklyn and then his time at Oberlin and being a musician and reading books and being one of 12 kids. Uh, oh my gosh, I didn't realize yeah, that. Right, um, And then you know going to journalism school. He told me that he went to Columbia School for Journalism and got in kind of wasn't expecting to because it's prestigious and it's competitive, so, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's reasonable to think you, might, you, you may not get in. He gets in, doesn't have a lot of reportage experience, and the reading, they send reading to do befo- over the summer before, and it's the Power Broker by uh-huh. Robert Cairo. <laughs> and I said, wow, it wasn't okay. that intimidating. He's like, oh my God, yes. I was <laughs> like, this is, it was amazing. It's like, you know, it's like, I, I don't know how to do any of this. Um, so
2: That's the weed out I, I guess so.
1: I guess so. So,
2: That's incredible. I think we'll
1: talk about um, Heaven Earth Grocery Store in frontless foyer today. We both Mm -hmm. read it recently, and we We have nice things to say about it there. So go check that out first edition. Um, We also did the August it books. The September it books are going to come out. You know, at the end of this month, we're getting down to it now. With September coming, Heaven Earth Grocery Store versus Tom Lake by Ann Patchett was kind of the final boss match of the knockout round Mm -hmm. we did. I hope I'm not spoiling it for people haven't got to it yet. But go subscribe, if you don't want to. I thought I would take stock real quick because I was telling you yesterday that <laughs> our heart votes for the McBride, yes. rather than our head votes for the Patchett, took a couple of hits in the na- one by the name of Reese Witherspoon, the other by the names mm-hmm. of Barnes and Noble picking the Patchett for the books of the month. Apple Books bailing us out today by making Heaven and Earth a Grocery oh, Store.
2: Good um, job, Apple.
1: One of their picks of the, the their pick of the month. Now. I've got this on, it's not deep background. Someone wrote in that's a bookseller, um, and I'm not going to say the state or anything because they asked for not all of this to be identifiable, but in response to our fervent hope that heaven and earth would be the winner, or, or, you know, winner, loser, this is all silly, but like to have a life, right? To be a thing.
2: Yes. Have some legs. Their
1: bookstore every year has, I don't know if it's a shelf or a list or whatever, but each bookseller picks their best of the year. Um, hmm. But so many of them were picking Heaven and Earth that they just decided to have a bookstore <laughs> pick of the year and then everyone could pick something else. I love that. Either that or half of the shelf would have been Heaven and Earth grocery store.
2: I love that. So, good for good for them and for James McBride. I, I was thinking about how this is the kind of literary fiction that we would usually see in September or October. Hmm. And I couldn't decide if James McBride sort of got the shaft getting dropped into early August when folks are still like, like Tom Lake is a very summer book. Yeah. It's great. It's Ann Patchett. It's reliable. You know, I talked about it last week and it's a very summery kind of book. The heaven and earth Grocer- grocery store does feel a little bit more like a, a fall reading prize contender kind of sitch. And I'm torn about, did he get the shaft there or was this wise to drop him into this time yeah. when that book can kind of stand alone as the lit star of a week or two before we get into Zadie, mm. Jasmine, you know, all the, the heavy hitters that are coming uh, in the fall. But James McBride can certainly stand among those folks. Yep. So, I don't know. It's interesting. I'd like to hear about the strategy of publishing James McBride uh, on August 1st. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, I don't know. I mean, we have talked, I think we talked about it on the show, this one or the, the other one or some someplace, about McBride still feeling not... In the correct rank of mindshare for yeah. people that like books, um, even having had Good Lord Bird and Deacon King Kong, and he wrote Miracle at Saint Anna, the the novel um, that became the Spike Lee movie, which is historical fiction, as, as a lot of his stuff is. But I've got to say, and I don't think it made an interview. I think I had stopped recording. We kind of we kind of talked for a little while after. I'll say this: he he's so grateful to have had his opportunities. Like I've had my fifteen mm-hmm. minutes, you know. I, you know, I'm mm-hmm. going to keep writing, but. You know, I got more than I could ever want. So, Rebecca, we're wrong and James McBride is fine. <laughs> And we don't need to worry about him. James
2: McBride is more gracious than we are, but I'm gonna like continue carrying my flag that yeah. he's criminally undercelebrated <laughs> until I see him being appropriately celebrated. Yeah. So well, he's got a,
1: he's got a good teaching gig in Columbia. He's had some adaptations. Um, he's worked with Spike Lee on I'm some other stuff happy. too. He seems like yes. he's doing great and in a really warm and, and wonderful interview. That's a that's a long promo. Um, but James I
2: McBride is more adjusted, better adjusted to than his we life
1: are. than we are. Yeah, we, yeah. you know what. Maybe that's one thing we should. Maybe this is a half baked idea. It's like maybe we should have certain sort of like reciprocal grudge holding. So you don't have to hold your own grudge, but you could like, you know, pass the grudge around. Yeah, so I'm having your grudge, you have mine. It makes it all easy, right. easy to bear. Yeah, it doesn't well, feel so narcissistic.
2: Our dear friend and former book writer, Amanda Nelson does this in real life with our friends. She calls it the grudge box. Oh, does she. Like, oh, that person, yeah, if you're telling her a story about somebody who did you wrong, like you might be unburdened, but she's like, "Well, that's in the grudge box." Now that he's in the he, that guy's in the grudge box forever.
1: That might be the like most Amanda the Nelson thing I've ever heard. Maybe. <laughs>
2: You know, and it, it's a service. It does feel like okay. No. I don't have to hold this grudge because Nelson's got it. She's got it. Um, I would be happy to be the bearer of the grudge box for you know many of the acclaimed literary authors of the day. That's fine with right. me. Let's do it.
1: It's like hiring an assassin that has no relation to you, so that like the motive is really strange. Like when someone gets murdered, <laughs> it's like well, I don't understand. It's like someone like slashes your tires one day, and the person has an alibi mm-hmm. that has the grudge, but Amanda has the the straight razor and. She got you while you were yep. at uh, um, uh, Bed Bath & Beyond. <laughs> the uh, grudge box. It's a thing. Let's do a sponsor break. We'll come back.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. W. Norton & Company Incorporated. So, Negative Space by Jillian Linden follows a week in the life of an English teacher at a New York private school. At home, her children ask constant questions about mortality, and her husband offers occasional counsel between Zoom calls. At school, something happens. She accidentally witnesses an ambiguous, possibly inappropriate interaction between a teacher and a student, but how can she be sure of what she saw? Negative Space is a portrait of a woman caught between the pressures of what's normal and what isn't, and examines what we owe the people who depend on us in a fractured and indifferent world. It's a debut novel and a short novel. It's perfect if you want something quick and easy to carry around, but it's also thought-provoking. It takes place during the pandemic, but it's not pandemic-focused, and it really just looks at everyday anxieties and low-threat situations that have high consequences. So make sure to check out Negative Space by Gillian Linden, and thanks again to W.W. Norton & Company, Incorporated for sponsoring this episode today's episode is brought to you by bloom books taming seven is an epic and unforgettable love story in the international best-selling and tiktok phenomenon the boys of tommen series from chloe walsh so tommen's cheekiest lad jared gibsey gibson has always been a comedian but inside he is haunted by events of the past and he uses humor to cope hiding his true self from the world Then you have Claire Biggs who is the epitome of sunshine. She's always loved Gibbsy, her brother's friend and her favorite neighbor. She also has always seen a side to him that no one else seems to notice and she becomes determined to tame her wild at heart childhood best friend.
1: This is follow-up time. So this is, I think I teased this to you on the show last week. Um, someone wrote in with some Barnes & Noble, maybe everything isn't quite so hunky-dory as mm. it seems. There was another <laughs> James Don Barnes & Noble profile <laughs> this week. This one in the I Wall saw Street that. Journal. Um, so, He's got
2: a good publicist.
1: So I think this could relate. Well, it definitely relates in this regard, but I think it may have a... Uh, longer game implication. Um, I'm going to protect this person's name, and I'm not going to go through too many specifics of geography or except to say one thing that this person says is happening at Barnes & Noble stores is that pushing this new paid membership thing that Barnes & Noble has been doing. I, I think we oh, talked right. about this on the show of going from this free get 10% off to is it fifty dollars a year, thirty-five dollars a year? It doesn't really matter. But a subscription base, where you're paying an annual fee for some perks and free shipping and whatever, is the primary way. Now, this is I'm taking this. This is secondhand. I haven't reported this myself. The primary way that managers are getting promoted, hired, retained, and fired.
0: Mm. The
1: the goal of retention and conversion of people into that paid thing is what is determining the success of a store right now or especially the employees of the store and it's pretty competitive because if you're not competing up to a certain level of a store that's in the same city i think or a median for the group or whatever then you're on the hook um and that's a different story than you're seeing in these james dot we're letting the booksellers do what they want and this is everything (laughs) for readers like (laughs) That's not the story. That's not being mentioned here. I don't think I've seen a mention of the membership metrics in any of these. James Don is here to tell you how to run indie bookstores like it's a chain stories.
2: Right. Yeah, I haven't seen that mentioned anywhere either. But that was also part of my bookselling experience there Mm. like 12 or 13 years ago because the memberships... The membership has always been paid but now it's the tiered oh, it thing been. and educators and it, previously it was that educators got a discount just for signing up but now even educators i think have to pay so they changed what the paid membership model looks like but this conversion to a paid membership has been a focus of barnes and noble for a while it sounds like maybe it's become more intense but i remember like that was a way that folks got promoted to be like... At the time, Barnes & Noble had leads of different departments of the store. I don't know if they still Mm. do it that way. But like if you were going to be the cash wrap lead, you had to have demonstrated that you were good at selling memberships because you were going to spend the bulk of your shifts at the cash wrap rather than like helping out on the sales floor or at the info desk or something um i'm pretty sure it was part of managers metrics we did talk about it in staff meetings um, but it's interesting that there's such a gap between the sort of rosy uh, look at how much power we're giving the the bookstores uh you know publicity pieces and the James Dont kind of like fluff that's going around mm. and this the kind of boots on the ground bookseller experience of being pressured to generate revenue yeah. this way. Like I understand why Barnes & Noble wants it because you sign up for this thing and it probably auto renews and that is some annual guaranteed recurring revenue Indeed. that they can look at when they're budgeting uh, but that's uh, putting that kind of pressure on I don't remember anything as detailed as like, like competitions between booksellers or anything I don't think I knew anything about how good I was at selling memberships against any of my coworkers at the time. Right. Um, so that's interesting to hear that it's getting a little more cutthroat. And that, you know, just interestingly, nobody's talking about that bit right. when they're talking about how wonderful well, it is Well, it's now. like,
1: you know, it's less true than it once was where you'd go. Do you remember you used to go into Office Depot or Best Buy and you'd buy like a printer and they'd want to mm-hmm. upsell you on like the warranty for like 10 years for like more right. than the cost yeah, of the yeah. printer? And I know some people that worked in those Stores and that was there was bonuses attached to those or performance measures of their kind, so they really wanted to push those. What's get measured, what's get managed. I think there's something in big box retail, and Barnes and Noble is still that, even as much as they, as they mm-hmm. want to be you know, where indie bookstores but at scale. The ability of individual employees to change the sales vector of that store is probably quite a bit smaller than their ability to affect the bottom line by pushing a membership, right? Someone's going to come in and buy a book. Like, are you going to get them to buy four more books? Maybe, maybe if you're an indie bookseller and you're really, really good at it um, and you have the time and attention, whatever. Um, I'm actually going to interview a a bookseller soon for first edition, has a book about the art of bookselling. So I've I've been reading about that. Um, And that, and, and that office Depot or Best Buy, are you really going to be able to get them into a new flat screen TV or not? I guess maybe, but what you maybe can do is get them to spend $200 on a warranty. Um, that they weren't going to buy anyway.
2: You know, as you were saying that, and I was thinking more about, like, that this has been a part of the barnes and noble model maybe just the fact that it has been a part of the model and this is not a thing that's uncommon across big box retail explains why it's not mentioned there like i was also a barista at starbucks they train like the first thing they train you to do is try to upsell a person to the next size (laughs) you know like oh you wanted a latte was that a venti what
1: do we got to do to get you (laughs) into a double caramel venti frappuccino today
2: Right. You ordered your venti caramel frappuccino. Do you want some cake pops yeah. to go with that? Uh, that's, I mean, these are basic retail right. tactics that are so common as to be deeply unremarkable and really not worth noting anywhere um but maybe the increased pressure around it could reflect i'd be curious if we had follow-up from this person like does the increased pressure around this membership reflect like is this membership harder to sell yeah. than the old membership was uh is the it's new model not working as well i think uh, just yeah.
1: on a, on a membership or membership basis it's more expensive so one thing you're asking for here too um if any other barnes and noble booksellers have info um i'll protect you know whatever But if this is your experience as well, shoot us an email, podcast at com. So I I wonder if this daunt publicity tour, um, the laurel receiving ending at the Wall Street Journal is telling because the Wall Street Journal is a financial um, publication. Mm -hmm. And remember that Barnes & Noble was bought by a group that is a private equity firm. Private equity is not happy with running losses for a million years. And they often don't keep... Their companies forever. It depends. It can change. I wouldn't be shocked if Barnes Noble goes up for sale soon or goes public again pretty soon because this is what you do when you're taking the, you know, if you're getting ready to take the, the, the cow to market, you show it off at the 4 H fair first. And that really seems like that's what they've been doing.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It would certainly, something like that would certainly explain retroactively why james do has been on this publicity parade yeah <laughs> other than just let's let the world know that james do it sounds like he's good at his job or wants you to believe that he's good at his job and has turned this barnes and noble ship back around yeah. be interesting to see how that shakes out
1: um some other follow-up uh follow-up on my kind of last minute noodle throwaway noodle about some sort of author's cooperative model where, author, mm. not I don't know cooperative right, but more like the NBA, the National Basketball Association, where the salaries of the players in total are a fixed percentage of the gross revenue of the league yeah. itself. And um, one, uh, one, one listener said, you know, this sounds like to me like the beginning of um, United Artists, which, you know, some early movie mm. stars got together to form United Artists because they could have more control, get more of their revenue and so on and so forth. I, I read the Wikipedia article, and I have I could not follow whether or not that central ethos or financial arrangement has endured because it like got sold to something that got sold to something else that became A- mm-hmm. MGM, which is now part of Amazon. And I would be very <laughs> shocked if the guys, yes, the guys, surprising. the guys and gals, and others at the big red A are like, "Yeah, we're giving fifty percent of all the uh, MGM gross revenue <laughs> to uh, Charlie Chaplin's descendants or whatever." I just don't feel like that. That's possible. But also this week, and I don't know if you linked to it or not, there was the announcement um, in Publishers Weekly. I don't think I put the link in the agenda. I'm sorry about that. For this new publishing venture house called Bindery. Did this go across your radar this week at all, Rebecca? This
2: oh, I saw it. I think it was last week, but yeah, yeah. I did see that.
1: Uh, it's essentially a new publishing venture that is pairing traditional publishing things like printing books and editing them and distributing them with the power of social influencers and making a social influencer part of the business plan and also part of the revenue cut for titles. So it works something like this. I'll find a show notes put in there. the, the, um, The company's called Bindery, where essentially bindery will present to influencers that it's signed deals with some potential titles that it wants to acquire. And then the influencers mm-hmm. say, yeah, I'll get behind this one. And I'll, you know, I'll TikTok about it. I'll tweet about it. I'll Instagram, I'll use whatever, whatever they, they're doing. And let's be honest, it's mostly Instagram reels and TikTok at this point, I think. And then in exchange, I'm going to get a cut of the business. I'm not going to get a flat fee. I'm going to get a cut. hmm and someone emailed to say, This sounds like what you're talking about. And it does sound that way. But what I would encourage people who don't know is to investigate the difference between gross revenue and net revenue. Because mm-hmm. this model, authors get 50% of net revenue. Um, in the NBA, I believe they get 50% of gross revenue. I know it's gross. I don't think, I don't know if it's 50%. There's just been a new bargaining contract. I don't know. But the difference between net and gross is the difference between. Um, your computer mouse and a field mouse. They're wildly different things. Um, gross <laughs> revenue is the total dollars taken in. The net revenue, it's what's left as profit after costs after. and everything's have been taken right. into account. So an author getting 50% of net revenue, that is a bigger percentage. But me, without even seeing the sales, I would take 15% of the growth right now, which is what most authors get mm-hmm. from a traditional publishing company right there. Because there's ways of messing with net um, Famously, Peter Jackson had to sue to get his profit share of a little movie franchise called Lord of the Rings because New Line Cinema claimed it did not turn a profit, which is insane. Um, so be careful when you see those types of things. The way the NBA works is like the the, the players have such power, the LeBron Jameses, the kobes you know, They're such marquee celebrities that we say, if we don't play, you don't have a league. And they said, and I don't care. And I, we don't care. This is how we can set it up, and you guys take your profit out of what you can do on your side. We're part of the cost of goods sold, essentially, and here's our fixed price, and they've unioned it, and they, they struck, and they've done all those sorts of things about it. So this sounds this way. What's different about this is influencers being part of the deal. This is not a better deal for authors, it seems to me. There's a, there's a flat yeah. advance and everything else like that. But this is not what I'm talking about. It looks kind of like it is, but it is not that, because it's gross, not net. And I should have made that distinction here. Um, Anyway, so Rebecca, am I right? Am I wrong? What do you think about that sort of take on it?
2: I mean, I think you're absolutely right about taking the 15% on gross rather than 50% on net. I'm not sure how, I mean, like a bestseller if you're an influencer and you push a, a billion copies of something yep. that's going to sell or that is selling really well, that might be better than the deals you're getting as an affiliate for other things you're an influencer for. So this might fall somewhere right. in the middle there. Um, I'm really curious to see who will be participating in it. I I saw the announcement of Bindery and then I stumbled just sort of in my own Internet wandering, um, or actually, it stumbled on me in my Instagram feed. Um, Catherine Budig, who uh, started as like a one of the first like yoga influencers, maybe a decade or so ago, she has just over two hundred thousand Instagram followers on her personal Instagram. Uh, but she loves to read and started a, a, a book club through a platform that she runs. Um, that has the book club's called the Inky Phoenix. It has like twelve point three thousand followers, and she is one of the influencers who's going to be part of bindery and i was just like scrolling through my yeah. instagram last week and saw her announcement and i was like oh interesting like on her personal feed that there's that 200k followers on the book club feed there's the 12,000. 000 um, she's been picking a book every month that i that is just a book she likes and is encouraging people to read and they do some discussion around i don't think she gets any like kickback on those sales mm. so maybe her thinking here is um that she will be choosing some of the you know bindery titles um, as her book club titles going forward and then she'll be able to make more than she would make if she was doing like bookshop revenue for them. Um, I would love to you know, hear more about that process and about how they're doing recruiting yeah. for this. Like, I think you can apply as a tastemaker um, for Bindery, or you could reach out to them. You can join the wait list if you want to be um, on there. But how did they recruit the first round of folks who are going to be their influencers for this is something I would love to hear more about. I think it's it's interesting, like, to try to put, to try to thread a bunch of needles, like, create yeah. a business model that supports publishing and authors and also has the influencer stuff built in um but i think it relies on the on it it assumes that influencers will continue to be important and the more algorithmatized all of our you know social media experiences get i think the less weight the individual influencer has my question about it too Right. It's we're moving away from social media and towards recommendation media like TikTok, um, where the algorithm just serves you the things that it thinks you like and you're no longer going through this mediated experience of like, I follow Catherine Budig, I like her, she recommends this yoga mat, I will try it. It's just TikTok giving you here's a yoga thing you might like. I don't know. I'm still not on TikTok and don't plan to be, but this is my understanding of how algorithms function. Yeah. Um so the the ongoing reliance on influencers we're building a brand new business on the assumption that influencers continue to be a primary mechanism for people f- discovering things and buying them um, is the biggest question mark of this for me. But um, as an attempt to pull a bunch of those pieces together, this looks about as interesting as I think one could be.
1: I think it's an interesting failure in the making to me yeah. for a couple of reasons. Yeah. And, and, you know, think you're right about things until you're wrong or you're wrong about things to your right. You know, it's a gambler's fallacy to think it's going to be other than it is until it isn't. Um, a couple of questions about it, putting, putting aside the revenue splits and all that kind of stuff. The, the, the fundamental idea is this, that let's say I'm a big TikTok influencer is my ability to select a book from a pile and then do enough on my own social to get it, to move more units than it would have traditionally published, is that consistent enough where you're picking one? Because it's one mm-hmm. a year. You can't do that many of these. And I think how a yeah. lot of the social media works, it's very rare that a single person, unless you're Bigalus um, and that's lightning <laughs> in a bottle... <laughs> You, you just can't plan for this. And this requires a lot of planning. got to select this one, yeah. and this is the one. I'm going to have to consistently it, get behind it. And the it, way the social stuff works is that one person then to be joined by other smaller or bigger or really love it and then have reasons to get behind it themselves. And I, I just don't know that that's replicable or even... I think you need to be betting a lot of chips to get one to pay off. This feels like putting a lot of weight behind one yeah. chip, and you just don't know what's going to take off. You just don't know.
2: I think the betting framework there is a really helpful way to think about it Mm. because like tiktok is a slot machine right (laughs) And very few of the times that you pull the lever do you win, if any of them. If you're somebody who's advertising your stuff there or building content about the thing you're trying to sell and hoping some of it will go viral. And especially knowing that TikTok is creating its own publishing arm where it presumably is going to leverage the algorithm on its own behalf, anything like one would assume if they're putting their thumb on the scale for the books that they produce, there will be a negative impact on attempts to influence tiktok users to sell Mm. other kinds of books or books from other producers it's i think it falls into the same kind of logical fallacy that we see happen on whatever the social media thing of the year is of like well this thing worked really well organically there were some organic sensations so Let's just try to engineer it. And the thing that we kind of repeatedly say about those is I un- I understand why someone feels the need to try this. I feel like I can also see why it won't work. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if you're just looking at that one sensation, like, we could try to capture this. I understand the urge to try to capture it. I just feel like I'm too old on the internet to think it can be captured.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess a good thought experiment if you're an influencer out there or someone pretending, or not pretending, but like, you could do this thought experiment of like, let's say I was... I don't know. Yeah, well, we kind of do this with the It book, right? I'm looking at a bunch of books. And remember, I'm not getting to pick from the Viking list or whatever. Like the people they're getting, you know, the Emily, Hen- you're not picking Emily Henry, mm-hmm. right? They're not right. getting, they're not going to bindery for a $10,000 advance in this thing. So put that to the side for a minute. You're looking at probably either early career, underknown manuscripts. And your ability as influence. Is to say, this is the one that's going to work. Okay, well, would you have done that six years ago with the things that took off. Would you have picked This Is How You Lose Mm -hmm. the Time War? You would not have. (laughs) Right. You know, you you just wouldn't have. Um, And you also don't get to pick Colleen Hoover because that was happening before you were on TikTok, whoever you are. You don't get to pick Emily Henry. Um, You don't get to pick Sarah J. Moss. You're picking, maybe you're picking, you're picking, you're not picking the fourth wing after it's already been published. You're picking the fourth wing off a pile of books just like it or a lot like it. What I'm saying is I have enough humility about my own taste and how books work in culture that it is way harder than people think to pick what's going to... Like, this is William Goldman. This is, like, 101. Like, if you think you can do it, I've got a bridge to sell you um, about how this works. (laughs)
2: Right. It's really hard. You know, I think we could sit here today and make some... We could try to make some predictions about, like, five years from now what kinds of books are going to be big, and we would be wrong. We would be we would be wrong. The things that become these big sensations, like part of the reason or the primary reason that there's a a story around how these books became big sensations is that it was unpredictable in some way, surprising in some way. And usually when publishing sets out to make a book a bestseller it either succeeds and so it's not really a story because we knew it was going to be a bestseller and no surprise there it mm-hmm. is or like in the the thing i will never get over is hachette publishing an ebook about how they made chad harbach's debut novel the art of fielding a bestseller before the book was even published
1: the the, the, the hubris the the greek gods don't like that <laughs> That you know, that's no. Oedipus. That's Oedipus <laughs> doing stuff like, yeah, I'll figure this out. I can notice, figure like, out why the plague hitting Thebes. Let me get into that. I'm sure I'll be fine. Yeah,
2: nobody's done that again. We no. haven't seen a repeat. Of, they haven't run that one back for another go. But, the, like, these things are, they're ineffable, they're unpredictable, it's word of mouth, That's and right. and as I think as you have put it so succinctly on past episodes, to, social media is just how we're doing word of mouth today, or recommendation media is just how we're doing word of mouth today, but it can't really be manipulated or harnessed, and looking at what's popular today which is probably influencing you know what kinds of manuscripts are going to show up for these influencers to choose from at bindery you're going to get a lot of stuff as you were saying that reflects what's popular right now but that is not a prediction of what's going to be popular by the time you have to try to sell this book and you know maybe if you're an author and you have struck out at the traditional publishing places like a $10,000 advance from bindery is better than a $0 That's advance a fair from point. You know, from nowhere, it's also $10,000 more than you are guaranteed if you put your book up as a self published title on Amazon and you just hope that someone on TikTok likes you and then you win the self publishing lottery. So it's not the worst choice a person could make, but I think Bindery is going to have a very tough time competing for. Yeah, desirable titles like you're not going to win something that's at auction
1: yeah you
2: know um on this so it's, it's sort of an acknowledgement of taking you know like the remainders of things that big publishing didn't pick um and trying to sell those things with a much different kind of marketing engine than what big five publishers have or just traditional publishers in general yep. Have access to. So it's, it's not the worst fallback option for an author, but I don't have any, I don't see anything here that tells me this would be an author's first choice.
1: No, and not as an author's first choice. I guess as a, I'm trying to think, is there like, a, again, if we could get all the information, let's say in five years we get one piece of information, I, I would ask <laughs> for this from Binder. By- no, I, I, this is what I would pick. Did a higher okay. percentage of their authors earn out than at a traditional publishing house? That that would be the, that'd be the single metric mm-hmm. because they're basically saying, rather than spending this money, um, well, I don't know. Looking at the net, it's it's hard to say, but we're going to give influencers more a cut that they don't get. So we're, that money has to come from somewhere. There's only so many dollars in a fourteen ninety nine commercial paperback, right? We're going to give them that money instead of spending it on something else. Either our bottom line, take it out our profit. Well, I got to tell you, there's not a lot of profit in books to begin with. I'm thinking they're basically outsourcing marketing and publicity. All the stuff a traditional mm-hmm. publisher would do on marketing and publicity that's earned and paid media is going to be offloaded. That's what we're hiring them to do in the form of pay, um, a percentage. Might that work in aggregate? Maybe. But I'm guessing these books will still follow sort of the 80-20 power law we see in regular books that 20% yep. of the titles are going to pay for 80. So maybe there's one of these that turns into a big hit. And that's great for bindery, but what about those four other influencers? Are they going to be super happy about it? And just because influencer A, who had the big hit this cycle, doesn't mean they're going to want to be the one that gets it next cycle.
2: <laughs> right. I mean, that's using the like you know lottery gambling, yeah. just what we know about statistics and probability method. If you are the influencer who get who gets the big hit the first year. The smartest thing that you could do would be back out of bindery right. in an ongoing fact. Like take your money, you, you double down. Right, on, Le- you on, leave you split when Aces. you're up.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right.
2: You walk away while you're up, and then you know go do uh, go do something else. Right. But don't assume that you're going to win that influencer lottery twice. Um, um,
1: and maybe we're, feels like maybe we're wrong. maybe we're wrong. Maybe the taste we- of people on these platforms for. This is I'm, I'm influencer X, and you you love and, and you love and follow my stuff. I don't want to discount that at all. And you will buy this book that I didn't write, and that I'm doing a bunch of disclosed question mark spawn con around. <laughs> um, that's going to turn into sales. I, maybe yeah, we'll see. It's, we well, I, it's an interesting thing, but like most experiments, you should assume they'll fail. And I'm not going to update my Bayesian right. prior uh, because of this. <laughs>
2: right? Yeah, I think that's. I think that's exactly right maybe we will be wrong about it who i mean who knows it would be this would be an interesting one to be wrong yeah. about more interesting yeah, than would. some of the other experiments that we've seen but um yeah just fascinating watching like the it feels like mad libs at this point mm. like the ongoing permutations of publishing plus influencing plus step three profit <laughs> Yeah. Like and and kind of feels like watching folks learn the wrong lesson. Like I was talking to a friend last week about you know, how amazing the Barbie movie is and how Mattel Mattel seems to have learned the wrong lesson because they walked away from the Barbie success and were like, yes, now we're going to make Polly Pocket movies, (laughs) movies about other Mattel franchises. And, like, it's not the franchise that made the Barbie movie great. It's the Greta Gerwig genius that makes the Barbie movie what it is. Like, maybe you could do that with Polly Pocket if you point also Greta Gerwig or someone equally brilliant at it, but the lesson that Mattel learned there seemed to be like, yes, the the world is hungry for franchise movies. Let's do it. Get out all the toys, <laughs> and it, it feels kind of like that's what's happening in publishing. Is people are like, look, someone convinced someone else to buy a book on the internet, and so we should try that same thing instead of understanding that word of mouth functions because it feels organic yeah. um, or because it often is organic and this trying to capture it and manipulate it uh, has not yet worked. That doesn't mean it won't ever, mm. but we haven't, we haven't yet seen somebody successfully like harness the TikTok and make it do the same thing on purpose that it did for Colleen Hoover right. by surprise.
1: Right. Well, I mean, it doesn't have to be, I mean, it could be J. Moss. It could be, you know, y- um, uh, Matt Haig in the Midnight Library, like you can have successes that are different than that, but like those are hard in hindsight to have picked a- a- ahead of time. And mm-hmm. I think the Barbie movie is a good example. And I was thinking about this and seeing those same um, that same that same cursed litany of future projects that they were they <laughs> they were putting out there. And I was like, this happens a lot in culture, is where someone catches mm-hmm. lightning a bottle and they think they're Zeus. And it's like no, no, no. Yes. no. <laughs> No, 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 no.
2: And no. also, they misunderstood what the lightning was. Yeah, right.
1: That's not lightning. That's a lightning bug, um, or right. something like that. And, and it doesn't hurt that the movie, by all by all accounts, is good. Right? You can make a bad something that could have been good because of the ethos or whatever. I don't think the Oppenheimer Barbie thing became a thing. You can't plan for that. You know? No. I mean, Oppenheimer probably benefited more than Barbie. But Bar- Barbenheimer as a hashtag and all the marketing, like it all it all matters. You can't. You, you just. You just cannot replicate that, um, and everyone did their job. Sometimes everyone can do a great job and have good ideas, and the product can be good, and it still doesn't work. Have fun figuring mm-hmm. that. Out. That's that's just the truth.
2: <laughs> good luck. Good
1: luck. It it's is. it's really hard, and it goes back to what we we're talking about last week. Is because there's so many there's so many chips on the table. There's so many cards in the deck. I'm, mi- I'm mixing my gambling metaphors, but there's so many people competing for that bottle and that lightning. Um, you gotta be really good now maybe the smaller stakes of this make sense maybe for a $10,000 advance they'll find that these really big influencers there's some that are huge and they get huge views maybe that's enough to put it over the edge I don't think it's gonna be lessons in chemistry though I don't think it's gonna do tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow I would still bet on the brand name imprints doing what they know how to do making their bets across a bunch of stuff in seasonality Mm -hmm. I I still think that makes the most sense
2: yeah, I would I would bet that way also because even thinking about an influencer who has a million followers, if you can get a piece of content about that book yeah. in front of every single one of your million followers, online sales conversion rates tend to be about two percent. And that's post-click. So like
1: Anyway, sorry. And that's
2: post click. Yeah. Right. Yeah, no, I I feel you. Yeah. So like the top Top end of what would be reasonable to expect from an influencer who could show a thing to a million people, like you knew a million people's eyeballs were mm. on it, is to sell 20,000 copies. It's not happening. That's not a failure for a debut title, but it's not a runaway success. Yeah. And that's the top end. Like that's not going to happen. It's Catherine Budig's 200,000. Instagram followers on her personal account or her 12,000 on her book club account like that's two percent of those people if they all saw it buying the book is not gonna make a book into a sensation so they're I mean they're hoping I think for follow-on that, of like well that's other what it is they're hoping content. that their
1: floor is higher they're hoping right that they can well, get to the base can, number higher and faster
2: they're hoping they can engineer yep. word of mouth by starting it from a bigger mouth Right. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, I kind of imagine there's some threshold of awareness and attention that a book has to pass even to become a candidate for word of mouth, right? Enough people have to have heard mm-hmm. about you even to be, to have that virality. And people forget that virality is a coefficient that comes from, well, we all became esper- experts in epidemiology, right? Like a viral coefficient. Right. That our factor is like, does it infect, does it touch more than one person, right? If, if someone hears, clearly it's happened with, it starts, it ends with us, is that for every person that read it, more you know people recommended on past that, and then the, and that happened on the videos as well. That's very that's just very hard to do, and the hope it's is that you, it's like I said, I've said this before. It's a lottery ticket, so you can buy a lottery ticket, right? It's a lottery ticket mm-hmm. to get to that threshold in which you're a candidate to become word of mouth because there's enough sort of baseline awareness that the kind of people that might talk about your book would talk about it. Maybe they're thinking, if we, can just, if we can have a higher hit rate to that level, then we'll have a higher hit rate for the level above it. And the, the gating function is just to get to be a candidate for word of mouth. If you have more candidates up there, then more of them get – I just don't think that's going to happen. And you and I, we're thinking of this from our own business point of view here too. We are mm-hmm. super not interested in investing in distribution platforms that can change on a whim. And change the algorithm, and we don't control. Like one reason we like newsletters and podcasts, they're hard to get people into. But once they're into them, you know, TikTok can't decide because of a server change that hashtag book talk is something that they control, right, all the time. And that's 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 a difficult proposition to get in as well. And the second thing about word of mouth, um, and I swear I'll get off this. We're gonna do the whole episode about follow up, which which is fine. It was a light week anyway. is that word of mouth people aren't going to, cl- they're not going to go to bindery.com slash influencer X slash title X. <laughs> Absolutely. The book not. has to be at Target. The book has to be mm-hmm. at Barnes and Noble. And I don't know that Bindery has a distribution platform to get the books in there. And here's the other thing, even if they are, Barnes and Noble does not put your book on an end table and say, you know what, you get 100% of that purchase price. They take 40%, they take 50% of that purchase price. And you know what that that affects? Net revenue. So yep. m- maybe on sales through com, they have a better margin because Bindery gets to pick that up in that sales. But to be word of mouth, you've got to be able to find it wherever you go. It has to be on Amazon. It has to be other places.
2: Yeah, um, yeah any place, anytime that... A customer has to like create an account at a new place forget they've never about. seen before for yeah for, forget about it <laughs> like although and we know this people listening to this episode you know this like you have clicked on a book title somewhere on the internet in your mm. reading life and landed at like publishinghouse name dot com <sighs> slash the title right. and from there you have seen you can buy this book directly from us, the publisher, or you've been given a list of buttons for Amazon and Barnes & Noble and Bookshop and all the usual suspects. And what you probably did at that point was just close the window. Yep. <laughs> Most people bounce if there's an extra click required. Maybe you clicked on one of the retailers. And if you did, there's like a 90% chance that it was Amazon. Mm-hmm. And this is a central tension in just how books get sold online, because the most effective thing to do if you actually want the sale and you're a publisher advertising a book is to link it to Amazon, because that is the place that most readers have existing accounts. So there's no friction in their, you know, there's no friction between, oh, that book looks interesting, maybe I'll buy it. And here I am at the page where I can do one click and buy it. Mm -hmm. Every click that you add into that process, requiring them to navigate between a bunch of other pages... Decreases drastically the likelihood that they are going to buy that book. But since publishing also has to play the politics game of indie bookstores get mad at you if you link your title directly to Amazon, and other retailers don't like it if you link your book directly to Amazon, they're going to drop you at a landing page that has all these retailers to choose from. So, kind of, everybody feels better about it, but you sell fewer books in the long run that way. And Bindery is going to be up against that, plus the fact that, like, readers won't really know what bindery is if they land at bindery.com yeah. in a way where like if you land at penguinrandomhouse.com you you do know that's a publisher.
1: Yeah, it's 14.99 ebook. Well, they have to charge sales tax depending on your jurisdiction. And oh, by the way, I'm doubting shipping and, is free on a 14.99 and card. And
2: what's but, their ebook distribution yeah, platform? I'm sure, <laughs>
1: I mean, they're probably going to be, you know, some bespoke login and it's going to be DRM. This is a look, it's a hard business. So, you know, publishers struggle with this too. I'm not saying um yeah. I'm not saying they don't But I think any experimental publishing model has to take a risk. I think this is a a risk worth taking, but most risks like this don't pan out. And um, I think, I'm not sure I have motivated reasoning, but I don't particularly care for most of the kinds of books that tend to be TikTok hits. Um, I don't Mm -hmm. particularly like that content format just for regular stuff. So, you know, take, take all I'm saying with, you know, a full dash of the Morton Salt shaker um, Ron, Sons- uh, Ron Swanson <laughs> yeah. um, dash of salt uh, to, to go with my take, but I, I think for those of you who are listening, like I hope it's interesting to think about what the realities of publishing are, and what you're tra- there's no free lunch. So you're trading something for something, and what they're trading for is interesting. But I think it's worth thinking about what they're trading away uh, mm-hmm. to, to open up that percentage or open up those platforms yeah, or
2: distribution. It's a good way to wrap that up.
1: All right, let's do frontless foyer, but uh, one last sponsor break. Should we talk about... Have, so you did both Patchett and McBride. Um, I did. Should we do McBride together first before moving yes. into Patchett? Or do you want to take it the other way?
2: Well, I pitched Patchett a little bit last week. Okay. So we can just talk about James McBride.
1: Um, well, let me say this. Just telling Michelle the ending <laughs> of the book <laughs> made her cry.
2: I have not attempted to talk about the book until <laughs> oh, right shall
1: now. Shall I ask you to relate <laughs> the end here? Yeah. Oh, God. Right.
2: We're not going to, we can't, we can't spoil it, but oh, boy.
1: (laughs) It's, it's moving. Uh, It's sad and moving at the end. I think it's Mm -hmm. also exuberant. The beginning is exuberant. It is. If I have a critique of this book, it's maybe the first 15 or 20 pages are a little impenetrable. Impenetrable is the right, wrong word, but it takes a little while to get into the community of Chicken Hill. We have a flashback, you know, um, he does a, he does a, uh, a curiosity gap thing, and not in a Buzzfeedy kind of cheap way, but there's a body, mm-hmm. we don't know who it is, and a lot of the book is sort of loosely the point of saying who that is, but it's also totally not at the same time. Um,
2: <laughs> yeah. I think that's my only quibble as well, that like, it's it starts with the body, you know. and then you get all these rewinds, and you start meeting the other characters, the other people who live in this place, and somewhere about halfway through the book I was like sending a link to it to a friend and so I saw the synopsis online that's like a body is discovered and then you spend the rest of the time figuring out who it was and I was like "All right I'm halfway through this book and I have forgotten that the point of this is to figure out (laughs) who that body is which is uh, honestly turns out to be like kind of totally fine like I don't think it it doesn't need the mystery box component that that introduces um, because the rest of the characters are so like once you get into it, the characters are so just fully realized and complicated and lovely. And this uh, community that they're in, in Pennsylvania, Pottstown, Pennsylvania, in the mid to late 1930s, um, we're seeing primarily Jewish and black characters and the tensions between them, but also the relationships between them and how they deal with the primarily white folks who run the town, because it's the 1930s. Um, Just really interesting. I was telling you, the vibe of the book maybe reminded me the most of Sula. Mm. It's not quite, it's not quite, there's nothing like surreal in it, the way that Sula has some surreal, like slightly surreal elements, but that... um, small town with these fully realized like real characters so the kind of people that you say oh she's a character like everybody is one of those um but not in a it's not like they're not outsized they're not caricature ish no that's um, that's just that's people-
1: important because we um said you know mcbride's corpus is extensive and and very accomplished and it's easy to compare him to someone like Colson Whitehead. I mean, it they really started with Deacon King Kong and Harlem Shuffle coming at the same time because mm-hmm. they're both yeah. writing something similar, but their own stylistic and thematic differences came so far across. Whitehead is so much more, I'm not even sure how to say it, controlled. McBride is much more exuberant, right? There's a reason he's drawn to John Brown, which we talked a little bit on right. this Edition, like this yeah. larger than life, but also very specific character. Um, at the same time So these characters are funny They're flawed um, they, they have big and specific And recognizable personalities And ambitions mm-hmm. um, And I think the central pleasure Of much of McBride And I think especially this one Is sort of walking amongst them As, as yeah. they're doing their stuff um, And the plot matters less right. to me The situations matter less Insofar as the a stage Upon which they tread And that's pretty high recommendation for me. I would say, just you want to spend time with the characters he creates becomes pretty clear Mm -hmm. to me in talking with him that like he 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 finds characters and then and then right that's that's Mm -hmm. how kind of it works. Mm -hmm. Um, This book was an outgrowth of a book he wanted he was trying to write that was about something else, and it didn't work. But the one thing that worked was Moshi in this character. For the other, if you Rebecca, mm. you've read it. But the other, like that character worked, and that became the hook and an entree into this other, this other Interesting. world. Interesting. Um, so if you like character, especially, you're gonna like this. I figured out pretty quickly yeah. who the the body was, and I don't think that mm. matters. You know, I, I mean, if, <laughs> that, that kind of thing. If you're looking for a mystery, like I guess there's a little bit of that there. I, I would think it's pretty thin gruel for a pretty hardcore mystery murder mystery kind of lover.
2: <laughs> I this. mean, I'm, you know, so historically bad at guessing the who done it <laughs> in mysteries and I forgot this was even right, a mystery. Right, right, right. That like at near the end when the pieces were tying up, I did see like oh, I know where this is going and that didn't impact the reading experience at all because it really is not about solving yeah. the mystery. This is not a mystery book. It just happens to have like a question mark at the start of it, but the relationships between all of these characters that McBride unwinds throughout like that's the point the point is just to, as you were saying to, like to be among these people and the more I thought about it the more I thought like I think this is one of the reasons that McBride is one of those authors that for me does work better on the page than in any kind of imagined adaptation mm. and I watched the Good Lord Bird adaptation with Ethan Hawke and like he captured the zaniness of the character and the book about as well as a person could but there's something to the vibe of McBride that just I think works better as a reading experience that you're dwelling in and that you get to feel the language of um if it just relies on dialogue and scenery and action the way that television tends to you lose a lot of that like the real sparkle of these characters and the experience of like, I feel, I always feel like when you're reading James McBride, you can just feel the like little twinkle in his yes. eye while he was sitting there at the keyboard.
1: I was thinking about that. There's, a, there's, there's many great characters, but one that stuck out to me in this book is a character um, who goes by paper, which is short for newspaper, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. she becomes... The, in- <laughs> the town gossip. Yeah, the informational hub <laughs> of, of the city. And the pleasure he takes in describing her and her <sighs> demeanor and how she delivers... In in a film adaptation, that encounter with a character is over instantly. You see their whole body, you see Mm -hmm. their mannerisms. But in describing it in prose, you have to slow down. You get to be specific and play. And McBride is a great describer of character. It clearly relishes that. But when it's on screen, like you see Ethan Hawke's visage and you see his character and you see his hangdog kind of look, but also this wild. It's like over so fast. But part of the pleasure with McBride is like. Lingering in those description moments because it's just fun. He's clearly having his own kind of mm-hmm. literary portraiture. That's that's fun. And you don't get that as often as you it might is. think.
2: That's right. That's a great way to put it. It's, it's so good. This is going to be in contention for my favorite.
1: Yeah, I can see why the sure. booksellers like it. Um, it mm-hmm. has an indie book because it's, it's up market, would you say, more than Litvick? Oh, I mean, yeah. this is, you know, I don't know who anyone cares about this. I'm, I'm mostly just trying to figure out for myself.
2: I think it's it's on that line. Like, I won't be surprised if this is nominated no. for some awards well, this year. Where, like, I would be surprised to see.
1: Market, but I hear what you're saying.
2: That's true. Um, the quality of the writing is so good, yeah. but it's so much fun to read that it, I, can, I think it kind of disguises it. Right. Like, it looks easier than it is. <laughs> he makes well, it that, look easier than it is. I think that's a great
1: is. point. Um, I think this seems like it's breezier um, in talking to him. How much yeah. research goes into this, and then he just sort of. You know, he does a whole bunch of research. He said, for um, Good Lord Bird, he'd write fifty books on John Brown, and he takes wow. copious notes, but he doesn't refer to them. He just sort of that mm. becomes um, kind of his m- h- cognitive toolkit or his rec- larder, and he just sort of pulls from it as he goes. And I think that that really comes across in in how these are put together because, yeah, I think I think it is. It does seem breezier and therefore easier. But breezy ain't easy, um,
2: is, is right? And it's and it's not breezy light subject matter. So it's quite it's like quite a trick yeah. to make a book that's about complex relationships between two marginalized communities during a very fraught time of American history, yeah. and that also deals with sexual assault in one place yes. and child abuse. Like to take all of those things and put them in a story that you can walk away from. Being delighted that you spent what five, seven hours of mm-hmm. your life with is very difficult, and that is, I think, that's craft, yeah. you know, in a, at a at a really high level. Um, maybe this is also why McBride ends up being criminally underappreciated. Is the books are so enjoyable that it's easy to forget mm. how really how difficult it is to create something like that. But I, I think this one it can be literary in that way, like at the level of the writing is certainly literary. What he's working with is literary. And I would be delighted to see it nominated for some awards for like, to bring it back to the Patchett McBride right. false binary that we've created. Like, <laughs> well, it's not a false um, binary.
1: And... It's a boxing match. <laughs>
2: yeah. Um, you know, and Patchett is also no stranger to a book award, no. but I would be surprised. I would be much more surprised to see, like... Right, actually, I, d- Tom Lake was an enjoyable, fun read. I would be disappointed in this boxing match to see Ann Patrick come out on the critical acclaim side higher yeah. than this James not, McBride It wouldn't be, be about the combat it the judges in yeah. that, in that uh, Right, outcast. exactly, yes. Yeah,
1: I, McBride I was thinking about, too. He's um, personally an optimistic person, and the books come across as, as optimistic, but it's also mm-hmm. not naive. Um, and yeah. I think a lot of people... And, and this is a... You know, this is... As long as I've been following middle brow and up high culture, um, sophistication is often equated with dourness or seriousness mm-hmm. or Cynicism. negativity. Yeah. And I think, yeah, the comic his comic sensibility, but also his not he knows the realities of the world. I think it make people may read it, or it gets dinged for not being quote unquote sophisticated as and I'll use something I really like, like the Underground Railroad or the Water Dancer, sure. um, which are sophisticated. It doesn't feel like homework. Yeah. But this is more centrally optimistic about people, mm. um, about community, about the possibility. This book is not about overthrowing the man. This is about right. connecting to your neighbor and what that can and can't do, and maybe it's enough. Maybe that's enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it may not be justice, but maybe it's enough for something good, um, to happen. And maybe sensibility wise, I I relate to that. But I think mm-hmm. it's not the kind of thing that wins you a Nobel. Um, no. So, yeah. You know, whatever.
2: But maybe a Pulitzer, National Book. Yeah. Award or nomination. you know, he Be won happy
1: those. To see that. He got a Pulitzer. Mm-hmm. You know, um, for Good Lord, Board. I think some of that too mm-hmm. was. That Good Lord Bird was... It,
2: That's a recognition of corpus, too. Yeah, yeah,
1: way, yeah, yeah. But there's something about that portrayal, and it's 417 pages long. That felt to <laughs> me... I think people were seeing in that the real... Um, I don't even know what to... It's a precociousness, the prodigiousness of vision there. And having a mm, grocery mm-hmm. store, it feels more... It feels smaller. feels more... It's more about community than Good Lord Bird.
2: Um, yeah. It really is. All it's right. beautiful. That's
1: enough. Um Go forth and, and check that out if you want. You can find show notes here, bookriot.com slash listen. Choose an email, podcast at bookriot.com. You can check out first edition. Rebecca and I do... Uh, already up is the um, August uh, It Book Knockout round. You're going to hear a lot of the same McBride patch stuff, though I think neither of us had read them at that point, so you can go back in time there. Yep. McBride coming out on first edition next week. We are recording right after this for Patreon. We're going to do a look ahead to adaptations that are coming out this fall and kind of talk about how confident we are in each one of them. Uh, and I don't know we're going to do the scoreboard, but we'll kind of use the, the director, actor, source material. And then I yeah. think all of these have a trailer at this point, the one we're they talking do. about. Mm-hmm. So we have a little taste. We have a free sample um, and talk about what we think looks like our best bets for the fall. Rebecca, thank you as always.